Hello, agents, and welcome to Podcast 13. This week, we'll be discussing episode 202, Mild-Mannered, and here's your summary for the week. Pete and Micah head to Detroit to deal with an artifact-driven vigilante. Lena and Claudia continue to clash over the fallout from McPherson's deception, and McPherson haunts Artie. Like last week, we don't have a specific writer appreciation highlight because this episode is written by the wonderful writers and supporters of the show, Benjamin Robb and Derek A. Hughes, uh, who we have covered before. However, I will remind you from their first writer appreciation that they do both have a background in comics, especially Ben Robb, and I believe that makes them a great choice for writing this episode. Shall we jump in? Yes. So we start off in Act One in Unaville with Pete and Micah walking around together through the streets on the way to the post office where Pete tries to say hi to people and everyone, they inexplicably hate him. This is so funny because we do get an explanation way later for why, but everyone is just like pretending they are invisible. Which is insane, and Micah isn't bothered by it at all, which I find hilarious. I also will point out that both Pete and Micah are wearing really cool black coats. And... Don't get me started on Micah's leather jacket. <laughs> there are so many good leather jackets in this episode. Thank you, costumer. Miranda knows this about me, but now all of you listeners do too. I am a sucker for a good leather jacket. Fan self. And... <laughs> I am a sucker for a vest, which we also get not one, but two vests on the incomparable Allison Scaliotti in this episode. So we both just have our fashion uh, thirsts quenched in this. That sounds gross. We both, we both get <laughs> to see fashion that, that we love. You have to keep that in. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm sorry. <laughs> I didn't mean it that way. I love it so much. Um, but yeah, I didn't even notice the vest because I was so distracted by the leather jackets. So we are who we are. Anyway, back to the show. <laughs> uh, so they they enter the post office where we meet post office worker Brenda. And she is played by a woman called Kyra Harper, who many of you may recognize from just a wide variety of things. But I know where Miranda recognizes her from. I don't. So tell me, Jill. Dr. Virginia Cody from Orphan Black. (laughs) I Oh my gosh, you know, because I've seen this in the past, and I don't think I've rewatched this episode very closely since Orphan Black came out, so I was like, I didn't used to recognize her back in 2010, so why do I recognize her now? I also may have seen her in something else because she's pretty prolific, but that's awesome science fiction actress for the win. Yes, and so I just had to point her out. I'm going to do a mini-actor spotlight on her because you have seen her in at least one, but probably several other things. Um, Again, this is actress Kyra Harper. She's awesome. My god, her IMDb list is so long and goes back to 1980. I won't list everything she's done because this is a uh, mini-spotlight, but... She was in the movie To Die For as Mary Emmett, which was a very popular film with Nicole Kidman before all the plastic surgery. (laughs) Um, She's been in a lot of sci-fi stuff, including something called Cyborg Soldier, which I've never seen, but I'm 
very intrigued by. She was the character of Joya in The Dresden Files. She was the character of Y. Lin in Lost Girl, which I know a lot of our viewers will also have watched. Oh, I love Lost Girl, yeah. Yep. So that is the mini-actor spotlight on Kyra Harper, who I was very pleased to see in the show. And it's actually, it was such a treat for me to see her in a sci-fi show before she was ever in Orphan Black, because as someone who got their degree in TV and is very familiar with a lot of shows and tropes, you can sort of tell what kind of character an actor is going to be in a show based on their IMDb history. And if I had seen her in something after Orphan Black, because she had such a huge role on that show, I would have thought, oh, this is a character I should be afraid of or keep an eye on later because they're going to be bad in some way. But because this is before that, she doesn't have that attached to her. So it was interesting to see her just play someone who works in the post office. And I love the, I mean, we get very little information about the character, but we know who she is. She's a public service worker in a small town post office. She sees Pete and Micah every Tuesday or whatever silly thing it is. And, like, she's kind of, you know, not enthusiastic about her job, but she's a nice person, and, and she, like, talks about, um, she makes this TiVo joke about how she wants to just be watching her shows, and, like, we get her, and we have, like, a fun idea of her, even though she's such a minor character. Yeah, she seems like she'd be someone's, like, cool aunt, or, you know, hip grandma. Yeah. And they're at the post office because apparently it's been six months and they still have not received their, like, their shipment of their belongings from home, which sounds really terrible because I love my stuff, not to be materialistic, but, like, your comforts, your home, like, the things you need to feel safe and at home, they don't have yet. So that's why they're going there all the time. Yes, And Brenda greets them by saying, oh, Joy, is it Tuesday again already? Which I love because they clearly come in every Tuesday. And Pete goes, ah, yes, kiss, kiss to you, Brenda. Which I like that someone's interacting with him. And then I just wrote in all caps, Micah makes the cutest smile. She's just so happy. She does her little, like scrunched up face like oh that's my goofy brother Pete like that's that's the face she makes and it's so cute it's so cute and I just we haven't seen her this unburdened ever ever and it's nice she finally feels like she has a place and alas there is no shipment for Pete but we see Micah receiving a is it a trunk it's a A very large brown brown trunk with the initials M-O-B on it, which immediately prompts Pete to make a joke about receiving shipments from the mom. (laughs) And she reveals that her middle name starts with an O, but she does not say what her name is. And Pete begins to guess, including such guesses as Olive Oil and Olive Garden. And Micah is just too happy to have her stuff to even care. She goes... These are my books and my music and my fuzzy slippers. And Pete goes, oh, let me get you some salt. As in, to rub in this wound. (laughs) (laughs) Just the small interactions between them are so good. Like, season two, we know exactly their relationship now. And we're seeing it in the smallest of actions on the screen. Yeah, and I think that 
having come so close to losing so many people that she loved at the end of last season and the beginning of this season, I think really removed a lot of that angst Micah had going into the first season. It was like, I almost lost everything and now I have all these things. And from there, we go to the warehouse office. Yes, and at the warehouse, Artie is being haunted by some sort of memory of McPherson. He's hearing voices of his past interactions running through his head, and he's deep in his own confusion and thoughts about this when Claudia interrupts his thoughts, and immediately she senses that he's not in a regular headspace, and she points out that he seems untethered, which is such a good word, especially knowing that Claudia, of all people, understands what it's like to be untethered from... 104 Claudia, that's the exact language that was used to describe her struggle between whether it was mental illness or whether it was an artifact, which is going to become Artie's struggle in this episode. Like, is he dealing with his guilt, and that's why he's thinking about McPherson, or is something else at play? And before I hand this over to Jillian, I would just like to ask Jillian, did you notice what color shirt Claudia is wearing in this scene? Was it purple? It sure was! So now that we know Claudia is not the bad guy, she is not only wearing a purple, like a purple long sleeve tee, but she has like a purple undershirt, like a little purple tank under it. So she's wearing a lot of purple. Yes, and I did notice she was dressed in cool, soothing tones for most of the episode. It was just like a very visual symbol that we, we can trust her, she's safe again. And also I did notice from the previously on that one way that they made us feel that maybe she wasn't safe before, her hair stripped had turned back to that sort of faded pink, I'm not taking care of myself of when we first met her, which is when we found her the scariest. So I thought that was some really good costuming insight from the team. That was really nice. Yeah, and speaking of the soothing tones, her little stripe is like a tealish blue-green throughout this episode, which is a very nice, cool tone. Yes, Um, and so... Claudia asks if Artie's okay, but he deflects, as Miranda said, and then asks why she's not helping Lena install new motion detectors. It's very clear from her response that she is not forgiven Lena at all and is trying to avoid doing that task with her. Artie responds by saying, the warehouse was vulnerable, and he doesn't say we can't be, he says we're not going to be vulnerable ever again, and there are other threats out there. Well, that's optimistic. (laughs) Claudia tells Artie that HG did them a favor by killing McPherson. And before I get into the response, I want to note that Claudia actually said, sister friend did them a favor. (laughs) That was my exact note. I like that it shows where she stands on HG. Only Artie seems to really see or sense that something might be off with HG. And... Honestly, I think that's because he's the only one that really cared about McPherson. But everyone else was really just glad he was gone. And I don't think that Pete and Micah have as strong a aversion to death on behalf of the greater good as, say, Artie would. Because Artie was a code breaker. He wasn't really in the field as someone who caused harm. But Pete and Micah were very much about we have this one job and if we have to be collateral damage, we will be. And if we have to shoot someone who's trying to hurt us, we're going to do that too. So I don't think it hit them as hard, but Artie 
gets really intense with Claudia and says killing does no one a favor. That's why we have Teslas and not bullets. And that's why ethics are codified in the, and then an alert pops up that cuts him off, but I'm pretty sure he was just going to say manual. Yes. And this is so important because we're going to have like guns throughout this episode, um, like mentioned, and then we see like the smushed up bullets, we get references to bulletproof vests and all of that kind of thing. And the idea not only of guns in real life, which is a huge scary issue, but in storytelling, um, one of my favorite storytelling podcasters who I've talked about before, her name is Lonnie Diane Rich, and she says that as a writer of fiction, whether that's screenplay or novels or what have you, anytime you give a character a gun, it's unearned power. It's just something that like they can use to immediately get the up in a situation. So I think we're going to get this theme throughout when we see not only the actual like bullets of a police force, but the sort of superhero powers as being unearned, like you just found this superhero uh, artifact and now you have all of this power that you aren't prepared for and that you, you know, may not use, even if you mean it for good, you may not use it in the best way. Yes, and we get that because of the alert that has just popped up, to which Claudia says, saved by the beep, and it shows that an artifact has come onto the grid because of incidents in Detroit, Michigan, which takes us to a Chiron of that place. In Michigan, we find some dude robbing an apartment when a door opens, and suddenly he is flung across the room as if by magic. Then we cut to outside of the apartment where lights flicker in the window and we hear what is presumably gunshots. And then the robber is flung through the bricks across the street and to our knowledge at this point onto the rooftop of the building across the street. Yes. So this burglar had a real bad run in. And then we go back to Lena's where Micah is dancing like a little ballerina. The classical music is on. Her fuzzy slippers are on. She has both a teddy bear and an old book in her hands, and she looks really happy. It's super cute. I love it so much, and she's putting up pictures of her mom and dad. Basically, Pete and Lena are peeking into the open doorway like a Scooby-Doo cartoon (laughs) and noticing how unexpectedly happy Micah is. She's super different. And then Pete comes in in his, like, brother-teasing way. He's patting his tummy, which is really funny. It's just like, she must have seen an artifact that makes her act like a girl. And she gives him the best smirk in response. Yes. And I'm actually so glad you noticed the tummy patting. I would encourage our um, listeners to take note of the tummy patting as well. Because (laughs) that's definitely something that Joanne Kelly noticed. And we'll come back later. Yes. They are just kind of like, Lena's there, Pete's there. They're all kind of having a little nice afternoon. But Artie interrupts. Right when Micah's reflecting on how she feels like she's at home to reschedule them at their regular job. And they have a plane leaving in an hour for Detroit where these artifact uh, like pings have come up. And that's that. It's time to go. Yes. And I do just love that because their lives are so weird. Like, they spent, they spent so long doing inventory, and while I'm sure there's always inventory to do, like, because it's such a vast place, they had 
such a long period of time where they should have been out collecting artifacts, where Artie was keeping them in the warehouse last season. So if there's not a ping, like, do they just not go into work? It's very interesting, and I like that he was like, uh, you have a job, and it's like, oh yeah, it's like a weekday, we know it's a Tuesday, they should probably be at a job. <laughs> yeah. Um, and, uh, while Pete and Mike are prepared to go, Artie walks out into the hallway with Lena and pulls her aside and says, I know things are awkward with Claudia, but you guys need to start working together and get over it. And Lena starts to fight back a little, say, don't talk to me, talk to, and he goes, just get it done. And he walks off. And at that point, Lena has what I'll just call a flashback because that's just what they are to me. I, in general, one thing I love about this show both with this arc with Lena and with the arc with Artie, is that they do a really good job of making sure that the stories they tell have an emotional impact on the characters without it getting too soap opera-y. It's not like a sitcom where, like, a character gets fired and then everything's somehow fine the next episode, you know? Like, their lives impact them in important and meaningful ways that we can actually trace in the evolution of the characters, and I really like that. Yes. Um... Interestingly, I referred to it in my notes as like an echo, which I might have gotten that from another Warehouse 13 episode, I don't know. But it's like something is reverberating through her mind and affecting her. And keep an eye on it because it'll come back later. So then we go to Detroit, where we begin with a shot of Pete seeing a very big hole in the side of an apartment wall. So Micah is speaking to a police officer who says that he was the first responder to all three of the mysterious cases. This is going to come up again later. Um, Pete, though, is doing his thing, um, going through the room, investigating, and he finds, like, smushed bullets on the ground. And he picks them up and shows them to the police officer and Micah and asks why the investigators didn't find these. And the police officer says, this is the quote, we're lucky we still have guns, which again is the the theme of guns, but also getting to a bigger topic that um, the police department has had cutbacks. And we know this is in Detroit and neither Jillian nor I are from Detroit or have having gone to Detroit or known much about it. But this is just a kind of brief thing I will mention that Detroit really has had a lot of struggles not only in the past 20 years, but, you know, historically with race riots and racial inequality and major social and economic troubles. So I think that that is in the background of this episode that the city has gone through a lot of strife and there's a lot of like lack of opportunity, abandoned warehouses, abandoned things, understaffed police. Um, again, I don't think we have enough expertise to talk about it specifically, but it is a point of this particular setting that they've chosen. For me, the one thing I know about that era in Detroit is that it was right when the recession hit and was getting really bad from 2008 to 2010. Obviously, the effects lasted longer than that, but it seemed between that period, crazy news was coming out every day economically. Yeah, but I know that the recession specifically affected a lot of auto workers in Detroit. So, and that plays very specifically into this episode. And that was cool for them to acknowledge something that was actively happening 
in the world at the time that this episode was released, even though it was a very fantastic, otherworldly sort of episode. Agreed. Yeah, thank you. So Pete and Micah ask if perhaps these smushed bullets could have been caused by Kevlar, which is the bulletproof vest material, and the officer just says, no, that's just freaky. So we get his opinion, and he's a, I don't know, he's a good character throughout as the, like, the good-hearted police officer who's continuing to fight for his city despite the city not having as many resources as, you know, the people deserve. Yes, and his uh, his character's name is Officer Kessman. I'm just going to call him Officer K going forward because there's <laughs> fewer syllables. Um, <laughs> but back at the warehouse in the stacks, Artie is doing some inventory and senses something. He turns around and doesn't spot anything at first, but then McPherson arrives. And then I wrote, <laughs> finger on the button, Randa. <laughs> um, <laughs> he freaks the f*** out. Beep! <laughs> <laughs> and just as he's freaking out in like, in a way that we don't usually see Artie freak out. He doesn't, he's never usually at a loss, but he just like sort of runs and is confused and then all of a sudden McPherson's gone. Elsewhere in the warehouse Claudia is doing inventory while listening to music and Lena shows up with some sensors that she's supposed to hang the motion sensors and she tries to get Claudia's attention which doesn't work so she takes off Claudia's headphones which really pisses Claudia off and Lena tries to get her to help with the sensors and Claudia says just flat out no. She's just not going to help. She's not going to do it. Lena tries to approach the issue head on, which I super respect because that's absolutely 100% what I would do. <laughs> she just says, you just want to get this off your chest. And Claudia says, my chest is burdenless. Can't you tell by reading my aura? Which I think was a really smart and specific callback to when Claudia was really distraught earlier and asking read my aura please like tell me that i'm okay tell everyone that i'm not a danger and lena under the influence of mcpherson of course says no i've seen something dark in you for a while so lines like that are really important because they make claudia's rage seem a lot less petty because it's tied to something specific yes and despite claudia's um continued feeling of betrayal and resentment towards Lena, she is now wearing more purple than ever, including the purple vest, which is now over the purple long sleeve tee and the purple undershirt, and um, purple eyeshadow, which she continues to wear through the episode. So just pointing that out. Um, and that makes perfect sense, because she's like, yeah. she's, she's almost like aggressively safe. She's like, how could you ever doubt me? It's like she's saying it with her color choices. I'm totally fine. I'm safe. I live for this place. Look at all the purple. Yes, that's what I was thinking. So this takes us back to Detroit, where we get an establishing shot of Loretta's coffee shop. And the Officer K tells us that this is where they host the neighborhood watch meetings. And maybe people just come to the neighborhood watch meetings because Loretta makes the best pies in the Midwest. We would think Pete would be super excited about pie, but he stays outside to catch up on the Farnsworth for a minute when Micah goes into the coffee shop first. And she has the best line. <laughs> she goes, Pete, 
He said pie. Yes. So we go in to Loretta's coffee shop to meet Loretta. Oh, look, there she is. It's Jewel State. She's talking to a tattooed up dude about the neighborhood watch and about keeping the neighborhood safe. And she also calls to another coffee shop employee named Sheldon. So if we weren't excited before that Jewel State, a.k.a. Kaylee from Firefly, has appeared on our Warehouse 13 episode, then Sean Maher appears. And it's like they pan over dramatically for us to see his face. Like we are all waiting on our edge of our seats. And maybe we only tuned in because we saw the preview uh, or the like the trailer ad that said there was going to be an episode with Sean Maher and Jewel State. And we have um, stepped right into a coffee shop AU of Firefly where Jewel State and uh, Sean Maher are playing co-workers there at the coffee shop. Um, Sheldon makes a pithy statement about criminals, which we will talk about in a minute. But first, it's time for an actor's spotlight. Doodly-doo. Jimmy's doing jazz hands. <laughs> so... We're going to start with Jewel State, the Canadian actress. Uh, She has been working in science fiction sorts of television for a very long time, including a few episodes of Are You Afraid of the Dark in 1994, Mm. as well as one episode of The X-Files in 1995. Um, She's been in a ton of other shows throughout the 90s, a show called Space Cases, which I have not seen. Um, she was in the TV show of Honey, I Shrunk the Kids. <laughs> um, she was in the the animated series of Sabrina. She was in the TV series Higher Ground. And she was also in a TV show called Just Deal, 2002. And where we all probably, as science fiction fans, know her from, uh, 2002 to 2003, Firefly, she played Kaylee. And then after that, she was <laughs> she was in, obviously, the movie Serenity. Um, she was in Stargate Atlantis from 2005 to 2009. She played this episode in Warehouse 13. Um, she was in one episode of Supernatural, uh, many episodes of The L.A. Complex, which I'm not familiar with, a TV series called State of Sin, a TV series called The Killing, And then finally, to her most recent roles, in 2019 and 2020, she is in The Magicians, where you might see her now. So she is a great actress and a cool person I follow on Twitter. Um, And she plays Kaylee, the mechanic who we love and is just like adorable and kind and, and also really smart and caring and who is often, I think, by many people, shipped with Sean Maher's character, who I'm going to talk about next. So, Sean Maher is an American actor. He also has been working since, like, the late 90s. He was in Firefly, same time period, 2002, And then more recent things that we might know him from, he was in The Playboy Club, which I'll talk about in a second. He was in Make It or Break It. Both of those are 2011. He was in Arrow for a few episodes. He was in the TV series Con Man from 2005, sorry, 2015. 
He was in EastEnders. Most recently, he has done some voice acting for various Teen Titans franchises. So he is a very cool person, um, especially because when he was in the TV show The Playboy Club, which I haven't seen, he was playing a gay rights activist. And at the time, he was not out as gay. And he came out in that year, 2011, while doing that role. And although I have not seen that show in particular, I remember the articles of him, um, you know, coming out and talking about being openly gay. And as an actor, you know, he felt the need to stay closeted to get the kind of roles that he wanted. So even the Firefly role, Simon Tam is a doctor and he's sensitive and he's well-dressed and he's a complex character, but still the idea of him, um, of that character, a lot of people want him to be dating the character of Kaylee and a lot of people want to see him in this sort of masculine, protective older brother role, um, which you absolutely can be, masculine AF and still be gay. There's nothing that says you can't. But in the interview where he came out um, in the magazine article, he talks about how he felt almost like there was no option except to stay closeted because of being a Hollywood actor and knowing that so many people, especially in the earlier 2000s, were just not thinking of gender and sexuality in any complex way and worrying that that would affect his career, which is super understandable. So again, he is out now. He's still friends with Jewel State, and I think that there are cute pictures of them on Instagram and various things. Um, but shout out to him for, you know, living his truth and being interviewed in that and, and having the courage to come out. Because um, we've talked about this on the podcast, you know, you should never feel that you have to come out and that you're being the wrong kind of queer person by not, because some people have to choose um, for their well-being or safety to not come out. But what he did was really brave, and we all love him just the same. And we still can ship him with Kaylee, and we still can see him love her in this episode. I mean, you're an actor, right? Like, yeah. you don't have to have the same sexuality as your character. And I think both Jamie Murray and Sean Maher do that in our, you know, recent episodes of Warehouse. And that's so important because it's sort of a proto version of something that's happening now with trans actors is there was like a movement in the early 2000s where it was like, oh, yeah, we agree. It's okay to have gay characters on TV. And so they cast a lot of like gay people as gay characters. But gay people have to be able to play straight characters, just like straight people have to be able to play gay characters. And I think you see that now happening a lot more, that movement, I mean, in the trans community, because we have great portrayals of trans people in shows like Pose and even Orange is the New Black, but we also have to get to a point where like trans women can play cis women. We, we've had a lot of cis people tr playing trans people in the past, We've had that for so long that there was an excitement in media, and there very rightfully should be, to have trans people playing themselves and playing those roles. But they're also not being given the chance to play everything that they can play. Yeah, exactly. And that's the thing. I think it's really powerful and important to have queer people play queer people. But, like, you know, you, you can just be the Hollywood star and happen to be gay. No, nothing should stop you from that. 
I think Neil Patrick Harris is also a good example of that. Perfect. Of a, a gay man who who plays some of the straightest seeming characters. <laughs> and it's like, yeah, that's his job. He can act. It's, you know, it, it's what he does. So I think that concludes my spotlight. Sean Mars' character, Sheldon, says to the tattooed guy, is he says there are two types of criminals, parasites and cowards, under which I just wrote, yikes. <laughs> Criminality is bad, but that is a pretty, you know, I think Jill and I and most of our listeners have a nuanced understanding of, you know, people who steal food because they have to eat, they're not parasites or criminals, right? So this is a very specific point of view coming into this episode. Yeah, and like also it doesn't even have to be so lame is about it. It can be people who sell drugs because they're trying to take care of their families and they can't see another way out of it even though it might not be the best thing for them to do so i mean especially in a city as under stress as detroit at that time that's an especially upsetting take that we'll get more on later yes so outside of the shop Pete is on the Farnsworth with Artie. He shows Artie the bullets that are all smushed and asks what could do this. And at this point, Pete is just kind of, you know, guessing around. He says maybe the artifact does a lot of different stuff. And they're not bad guesses. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Artie's like, this doesn't make any sense. But he's making he's making some good stabs at it. He is waiting uh, extra long for his pie in order to make this call. Um, so this is when Pete realizes, he's like, this is too crotchety even for you. Like, Pete's doing a good job, and Artie is just, you know, having none of it. But he does apologize. You know what, you're right. That's important. And so he apologizes and does agree that he will have Claudia look into, like, artifacts that make you invulnerable. Um, he is apologetic, and they are gonna continue helping each other through the mission. Inside, Pete joins Micah, and they start talking to Loretta, which I don't know if we said, but that's Jewel State's character. And Loretta says she has to run to the bank, but they can definitely stay and talk to Sheldon, who I definitely almost just called Simon. Uh, And as she says that, she opens a safe, and Pete and Micah definitely clock it. They're like, what is she keeping in there? And... Sorry, but then she says they should talk to Sheldon, who also works with the Neighborhood Watch, and she tells Sheldon to get them each a slice of lemon meringue pie. And then I wrote, Micah says no due to product placement. (laughs) Oh, oh boy. So I completely understand, especially the Sci-Fi Channel has very limited budget and product placement is sometimes what you have to do, but I just... This is this is not um, a criticism of the writers or the channel. It's just a criticism of if Micah was a real person who turned down the best pie in town for a store-bought snack, I think that's really sad. Um, again, not doing any any mean uh, any meanness here because I get it. But um, this actually is as good of product placement, considering they have to do it, that they could have done because. She, like, makes the offhanded reference, like, actually, I prefer my Twizzlers. She has apparently changed gears from when she used to not eat sugar. Although, again, perhaps this is her in, you know, kind of settling into her new life, where we know that Artie likes cookies and Pete likes cookies and Lena makes good baked goods. Like, maybe we can make this really work for us in that Micah has now 
changed her ways. She likes some Twizzlers. And they they stick in the placement and then keep moving through the scene. So it's okay. We make it through. We can have a giggle and then be done. And I and I did like that they used it as a chance for character development, like you said. And it it did feel like yeah, they could have easily given it to Pete as the product placement. Like, you could have said, oh, I just had a lot of Twizzlers, but yeah, okay. <laughs> but instead they gave it to Micah, which I actually kind of like, because that feels like a very Micah way to grow. Not just incrementally, but actually quantifiably. <laughs> like, no, I have allowed myself one Twizzler this time, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> well, and I was going to say the same thing, because I actually, fun fact... Uh, when we launched the podcast, Jillian bought me a mega pack of Twizzlers <laughs> for my birthday. It was like five pounds of Twizzlers. I did not finish them all. I'm sorry. Oh, no, it's okay. <laughs> we remember that from the show that Twizzlers was a thing. And I can picture it as a character thing because, like, think of Micah's personality. She's, like, always got to be ready to do something. And Twizzlers, like, you can have one hanging out of your mouth while you're driving, or you can, like, be touching artifacts with your hands and just, like, taking a casual bite of a Twizzler. Like, it's such a convenient snack, and this is not an ad for Twizzlers. If you want to sponsor us, come on board. We are not sponsored by anyone. But, like, it makes sense that, that like, she's not into, like, you know, sticky toffee pudding. She's into Twizzlers. And so they're having a discussion with Loretta and Sheldon. Sheldon, I just, if you look really carefully when they're panning in, he seems to be working on a pie, but the pie is already made, so he's kind of just sticking his hands on a pie. Oh, I thought he was cutting it. Oh, is he cutting it? I didn't see a knife. I just saw his hands, and I was like, what is he caressing the pie oh, I saw him cutting it, but, like, it didn't look like a real pie because it was, like, a lot of effort to, like, get whatever. Like, it just looked like he was putting a lot more effort into it than needed be to be done. And we know, I think Jillian has mentioned it before because she has done some acting, like, eating scenes are the worst. The like, worst. So it's probably not real food, and this makes way more sense now that now that I know he was cutting the pie. I actually just want to talk about this because we'll see it later, and I was actually going to bring it up later, but now is as good a time as any. The reason eating scenes are the worst is because either you have food that is real, but then you have to keep eating it for however many takes, and sometimes... It can be forever because you'll have a bite, then have to say a line. They'll be like, no, that was too garbled. Try again. So you can wind up eating way too much of something. Or a lot of what happens is you get like weirdly frozen food that's been refrozen and unfrozen a bunch of times and is not okay to eat oh, because it's like it's just made to look good on camera and it has some artificial ingredients in it so that it doesn't melt over the course of a long shoot. Having to actually eat it is disgusting. So, I want you to think about that going forward in this episode, because it will matter. <laughs> <laughs> so, while they're preparing the pie, Loretta seems concerned that the Secret Service needs help from the neighborhood watch. We also get the token, is the president in town sort of discussion. But alas, they're there with the safe, and we get some creepy music looking from Pete and Micah's point of view into the safe, getting the idea that maybe there's something suspicious in there. But, oddly, as soon as we have that idea, it gets it gets overshadowed by Officer K. Officer K suggests that he has to go because his city needs him. 
And Pete and Micah identify like, oh, this police officer who's like really overworked and understaffed um, could be a good suspect. He was there at all three scenes and he's ticked off about the cutbacks. So instead of developing the idea of the safe further right now, they go after Officer K. And as they leave, Pete takes both the slice of pie offered to him and Micah's. <laughs> and he grabs them in his hand, like, without a plate or a napkin. He, like, straight up grabs them. I mean, I just gotta imagine that there was some amount of shaving cream in there, and it just bums me out. <laughs> oh, no. Well, you heard it here first. Industry hacks. Pie and shaving cream. So, they, uh... Go after Officer K while Pete continues trying to guess Micah's middle name. Um, They're trying to also speculate about what artifact he has as they watch him from their car. While Pete eats the pie. He's eating it. (laughs) I mean... (laughs) I just had to point it out because I just was so disgusted. Well, I hope that whatever pie he had to eat was a good pie. One would hope. (laughs) Let us know, Eddie. But yes, while he has a mouthful of pie, they see Officer Kessman receive a message um, on his little police radio and kind of jump into action about something. And that leads Pete and Micah to follow suit. Game on, Pete says. And they follow him to a home that is being burgled by multiple dudes. And... (laughs) Pete busts in and says, freeze, Dirty Harry. (laughs) I thought that was so funny. And Micah also says, drop the artifact. And Officer K is like, I didn't do that. What? Artifact? Like, he does not know what they're talking about. And I never bought him as the bad guy, quote unquote, of this episode. Because, I mean, he's surprised they still have money for guns. Like, the reason he's the first on scene for all of them is because he's the only officer on staff. Like, he's got a lot of ground to cover that he's responsible for, and I don't think that makes him a suspect. Although I do see why Pete and Micah got there. Yeah, um, and so he is insisting that he didn't do this, and he starts explaining that it was an anonymous tip, and that's why he's there first, but he can't finish his explanation because they hear loud banging and rush outside in pursuit of it. And there they find a purple tighted superhero looking dude with the traditional, quote, underwear on the outside, which is just trunks. Um, and he's lifting the nearly escaped robber above his head. And Pete is stoked. He just goes, no freaking way. <laughs> yes, I love Pete's face. Yes. And then the man in purple says something interesting. He says, please help me, which I thought was really not what you expected to hear from that person at that time. And Micah says, okay, put the robber down slow. But the dude just tosses the robber toward Micah and then escapes by flying away, to which Micah says, who was that masked man? And of course we get our Superman joke. That was no man, that was a superhero. Um, I like this tie-in a lot, because Pete just last week in the H.G. Wells episode talked about wanting a first edition comic book, and now we get him being the superhero comic book guy, 
and it's consistent and we get more characterization about it later. So this is all awesome. I love what you said, Jill, because I had thought, and the superhero is wearing a mask, so it's hard to see anyways. I had thought the robber said, please help me, but it makes sense that it could be the superhero because perhaps when he throws the, the burglar, he is trying to set him down, but he literally can't. He's, he's too strong that even the smallest movement, like, is a giant throw, you know? Yeah, and, like, I at first thought it was the robber, too, but then I realized that didn't make sense with Micah's response, because if the robber had said, please help me, she would have responded with something like, it's okay, we're gonna get you out of there, you know, trying to calm him down, but she was responding to the person speaking, I would think. No, I think you're absolutely right, and I think just because he was wearing a mask, I assumed he wasn't talking, which is not how masks work. (laughs) (laughs) I love that. Um, And so with that... So with that, go for it, Jill. It took us 12 minutes to get here, but where are we? (laughs) Do-do-do! (laughs) Do-do-do! And actually, it works out that it took us 12 minutes to get here, because that is how long the first act was. It was a hugely long first act. And we jump back in with Pete saying that that was the Iron Shadow, only the most awesomest superhero of the Silver Age. And he's so intrigued that Micah doesn't know that because he's like, you grew up in a bookstore. Like, especially if, if this superhero, and it's a fictional superhero, but if this was a big deal superhero, and if someone is like, uh, Spider-Man, who's that? Like, you would be like, what? Do you live, you know, under a... a hole under a hole under a rock like you know um and I love the way that this conversation unfolds because Micah was like yeah I grew up around real books and Pete says yeah comic books and that's exactly what he should say not only because I believe and don't let any other English teacher tell you this I am an English professor comic books are valuable objects of study and they are books They're not the same as novels, but they have as much rich cultural content and, like, things you can learn and perspectives you can gain. And, like, especially um, throughout history as comic books have been drawn and written and made by more women and more people of color and more ideas, like, comic books and graphic novels have begun providing us with really valuable insights um, and... Even the older ones can tell us a lot about previous cultural moments. So, yeah, do you want to add on to that, Jill? Yes. I would also like to say, and I will include some of my favorites in the show notes, but there are some great works of literature that are in graphic novel form. I look to graphic novels like Mouse or Persepolis or um, my personal favorite graphic novel, Stitches, by David Smalls, which is the true autobiographical story of a boy who lost his voice because his vocal cords were cut during surgery and that boy eventually went on to become a children's book artist. He wrote his autobiography in the form of a graphic novel. And just because something is in pictures doesn't mean it has less value than something that's composed entirely of words. Yeah, I think Fun Home is another good example we should put in here. Yeah. Um, And also, if you're an academic, there was a PhD student in, like, literary theory did their PhD dissertation as a graphic novel. It's called Unflattening, and it's really good. Um, So, like, 
comic books are awesome. And Micah understandably came from a more traditional bookstore environment. But I think this would be a good moment to introduce our experts for this week, who are, in fact, comic book people. So we mentioned that we love our writing team, um, Ben Robb and Derek A. Hughes. Because we have a writing team for the uh, TV writers, we have a writing team for the artifact experts. So this writing team is Stina Atterbury and Josh Pearson. Stina Atterbury is a PhD candidate in the Speculative Fiction and Cultures of Science Department at the University of California, Riverside, and she is an expert on indigenous SF. Josh Pearson is a lecturer in science fiction at California State University, Los Angeles, where he teaches 20th century American fiction and gender and sexuality studies. Together, they co-wrote an article called Today's Cyborg is Stylish, which is an academic project about fashion theory in tabletop gaming. We mm -hmm. wrote this together a couple of years ago, which meant that I, I wrote a draft and then you rewrote the draft and then mm -hmm. I rewrote that draft. Yeah. So uh, something we worked on together um, about cyberpunk fashion in the tabletop role-playing game Cyberpunk 2020, which is probably going to get more attention now because they're making a video game out of it. Mm -hmm. um, it's a really fun game, but we were interested in this mechanic called humanity cost, which is that uh, whenever you sort of get a prosthetic or a kind of technological uh, thing that you add to your body, there's a risk involved in that. And if you get too many, you might go insane and become kind of institutionalized there's kind of social yep. consequences as well as like mental consequences mm -hmm. and that this applies to all of the cool fashion accessories that you can get in the game <laughs> as well as just like having a gun arm um you you know your tech hair might make you uh, go insane and have a humanity cost so we were looking <laughs> at the role of fashion in like cyberpunk posthumanism basically what we came up with was that clothing is an interesting kind of space for thinking about becoming posthuman because it's something that merges uh subject and object you kind of are your clothing and your clothing is an object that you're sort of interacting with almost as if it's a technology um, and that in the game, at least, uh, having different kind of clothing objects is precarious. It comes with risks. Mm -hmm. So they have a lot of expertise, not only in comics and in gender and race and history of those things, but also in a little bit of fashion theory and a little bit of science fiction, um, you know, fashion and costuming. So I cannot wait to hear their dual interview as we go through this episode. Yes, especially their thoughts that I'm sure will be put here about the comic book Silver Age. Comics are often discussed as coming in, in ages, and the ages that people usually point to are the golden age of comics, um, which kind of starts in the early part of the 20th century. Um, running up to World War II, where a lot of the earliest superheroes, Superman, Batman, uh, the Human Torch, are created, and there's a wave of interest in them. And then after World War II, um, for a wide variety of cultural and political and economic reasons, superhero comics kind of went out of style. And other kinds of comics, cowboy comics, romance comics, detective comics, crime comics, other genres became the things that people wanted to read, and the superhero comic genre kind of died out or went, went fallow for a while until the 
kind of the late 1950s and early 1960s when it kind of sprung to life again in what is called the Silver Age, when characters like the Fantastic Four and the Avengers and the X-Men and a lot of the characters that are very popular now kind of sprung into existence. A lot of the Silver Age heroes were kind of science heroes, like the Fantastic Four or Iron Man, or kind of more explicitly magic heroes like Thor or Doctor Strange. And the Silver Age, people argue about when it ended, but basically it ends in the 1980s with some of the kind of postmodern revisionist comics like Frank Miller's Dark Knight Returns or uh, Alan Moore's Watchmen. And in kind of the response to that, comics got very dark and edgy uh, and kind of emo, and you get Spawn, and everyone's wearing a trench coat, and people have a lot of pockets and spikes so and knives and things. And, and that's sometimes called the Dark Age or the Bronze Age. Um, the reason that we were a little skeptical um, that the Iron Shadow was a Silver Age hero is his his outfit type and his powers, which are just kind of seem to be based more on on strength generally seem kind of golden agey. He seems very much a kind of traditional punch him hero. But uh, just like heroes like Superman and Batman from the Golden Age are still around, heroes are continuously updated and changed and renovated. So Pete, who has looked at hundreds of these comics, might ha have as his mental image of the Iron Shadow kind of a mismatch of a Golden Age and a Silver Age version. So... I think the really helpful thing that we talked about, Jill and I, before we recorded, is that Josh and Stina make really good points, first of all, about the Silver Age maybe being a little different than the Iron Shadow, but also maybe being an amalgamation because this fictional character lasted for a long period of time that shows like all these different traits that he picked up as his character was reworked and rewritten. Micah is asking questions about uh, the Iron Shadow. Pete says that the Iron Shadow doesn't have any powers. He's just really trained as an urban samurai. I would liken him to a character like Batman or perhaps even character like Hawkeye, male or female. They're just highly trained individuals who don't have superpowers but are super compared to the average person. Yeah, when the Iron Shadow gets developed throughout the episode. Pete describes him as a regular guy trained to be the ultimate urban samurai. So that's exactly what it is. But at the same time, there is this, um, and this is what Josh and Stina also write about, uh, cyborginess, not in the literal way of like being half machine, but in the sense that when he puts on this pair of trunks, this is an extension, uh, a non-human extension of himself that then kind of creates a different character for him. So there's so much complexity in trying to map this fictional character onto the real history of comic books. And I would also argue that I think it's really interesting that they specifically reference the Silver Age of comics because that's very reflective of the character who we do find out is the Iron Shadow in this world. Uh, as someone who is in a stage where he's very flawed and very introspective at this point in his life, because that's very much a part of what makes Silver Age comics Silver Age. Then, going back to the scene, we're at Loretta's, where things are getting confrontational. They return to the coffee shop, and 
Loretta doesn't understand why the Secret Service are investigating petty crimes. Micah is now demanding that Loretta opens the safe, so we're getting called back to that. They're like, it's not Officer K, it must be this safe. And Sheldon jumps in, and I know this is like, you know, fan fiction fodder, where we get the one person being really defensive and protective of the other person who we want them to be with. And he says she means so much to this community. She's a good citizen. Um, and his hands begin to visibly shake as he tells Pete and Micah that he vividly remembers being robbed in his own home, having everything taken from him at gunpoint. And he lists off the things that were stolen. And this includes his collection. Yes. And that is really scary. My house was burgled and I got in just as the burglars were leaving and it could have very easily turned into a robbery. And this isn't recent. This was back in my first apartment. But I definitely get why that would make him feel really unsafe and like he needed to be stronger than he was. Yeah. And we see Loretta put her hand on Sheldon's hand. And I think this is good just sort of nonverbal storytelling, but also showing Micah's observational abilities because when Loretta puts her hand on Sheldon's shaking hand, Micah gives a little eyebrow raise. Like, Micah knows that this relationship between these two characters, particularly Sheldon's feelings as he's defending Loretta, is very strong and possibly, like, motivating whatever is going on they don't know yet. So Loretta opens the safe and tells Pete and Micah to knock themselves out. And I refer to them in my notes for the duration of this scene as the dork duo because they're real dorky. (laughs) (laughs) The dork duo gets real cocky about an old looking key they find in an old looking pouch and they give them this sort of intentionally suave eye raised look as like you may want to cover your eyes. And then they do the thing where they drop it into the artifact bag and, like, drop away dramatically and nothing happens. (laughs) And it's really funny to see them do that together because usually it's just Pete being melodramatic, but Micah is so in this time and you don't usually see her be this wrong about things this consistently. Yes. And I think that's really fun because this episode is really cool for showing how Pete can be an expert at things. Yes. And so the dork duo, they're trying to do a smooth recovery. They're like, all right, nothing to see here, blah, blah, blah. Like, they try to play it cool. And one of the offhanded comments uh, that they make is, I guess the Iron Shadow doesn't use keys. (laughs) And Sheldon just says, like, the comic book? And this (laughs) is really well played by Sean Maher because knowing that he is the Iron Shadow, spoilers, Um, he plays off like, what are you guys talking about perfectly? So they give the key back, which to be fair, was a really old key and they didn't say what it opened. That's true. So I get it. But they give the key back and just sort of sheepishly leave. And on the way out, Micah asks Pete what he'd do if he found an artifact that gave them superpowers. And Pete says he'd he'd find Ralph Grunsky and give him the mother of all atomic wedgies. And if you recall, that is the same childhood bully who made fun of Pete for smelling like tuna fish. Yes, and we got that uh, joke with the dodgeball um, in that whatever episode that was. This is... I wrote Pete's old, like, school rival. (laughs) 
And it's so funny because he says this with such conviction. And Micah just looks at him like, what are you talking about? And then he's like, oh, okay, okay. Well, if I was a Joe Schmo and I came across something that gave me this ridiculous power, I would don the guise of my favorite superhero and fight crime, which is now their running theory of what's happening. And then from there, we go to a place called the Harry Tarantula Comic Shop, which has harryt.com on the sign below it. And because I am me, I type that in, fully expecting to get something that I wish I hadn't seen, and it's just a real comic shop. That's amazing! Oh, I'm so happy because I didn't Google it because I was like, that's going to take me somewhere. Um, no, I love it, and also a shout-out, they spent a large amount of their budget, I am sure, getting the rights to R.E.M.'s Superman, which plays as we get the establishing shot of the comic store, and they walk in, and it looks, um, to me like a a comic store, like one of the the big ones. Um, Yeah. I mean, I've been to many, and they, they have a wide variety of appearances, but we see in that shop the same tattoo guy from Loretta's working the counter of the store. Um, Micah is like, wow, Artifact City. But Pete points out that these are instead collectibles. And he's going to do some looking around while Micah goes to ask the shop owner about possible leads. And she asks about some leads. She asks a bit about the Iron Shadow um, and about this dude's opinion on vigilantes. And this guy has no negative opinions about vigilantes. He is not a fan of the cops. He pretty much blames them for the state of things and isn't really acknowledging the complex situation that leads to them being understaffed, which is, you know, often what happens in this kind of place. And I know that misogyny in comic book shops is an old trope and it's something, especially at this time, that people dealt with when women went into comic book shops. I know that's not 100% true anymore. But I will say I do like how this comic book owner doesn't physically fit into the nerdy string beanie sort of comic book owner that you see on something like The Big Bang Theory. He looks like a muscular dude who's into these kinds of things. And I think that was an interesting choice. I was thinking the same thing. He is very buff and very heavily tattooed and bald. He looks like a... The biker gang in Veronica Mars. Yes. Like, that's the kind of depiction they're giving him. And I think it does do something interesting in terms of, like, not all people who like comic books are, first of all, not all of them are men. And second of all, not all of them are nerdy in a stereotypically damaging way. But, yeah, he still does treat Micah kind of grossly. Yeah, I mean, as a woman who likes comic books, I don't like comic book stores. I know that they're often better now than they used to be, but I tend not to try to risk it because, you know, too often it it is that kind of, and it is a caricature in the show, the kind of overly misogynistic weirdo who's running the store and will not stop talking to Micah. But uh, at the same time, that behavior happens a lot. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. And at this point, you don't really need to go into comic book stores to get comics because it's so easy to get digital comics um, as they come out that way. So there's less of an expectation that you need to go to it or that that's a central place, unless they're also doing a bunch of other things, like having a bunch of kind of kitschy merch, um, which mm-hmm. can be fun to look at as well. Yeah, I mean, I've, I've been to a lot of comic shops and I go to a lot of gaming shops, 
which may or may not share space with comic shops, but have the same gender politics about 15 years behind. And a lot of them are just like dankly masculine spaces. And the ones that aren't are often very self-consciously not. A lot of the gaming stores that I really appreciate and some of the comic stores that I like have just kind of really inclusive signage because they know that ladies and people of color and queer folks who have often had negative experiences need to see something like reassuring on the door to even come in. So I know that a lot of people have really great community experiences in these spaces, um, but a lot of struggle has happened in the last 10 years to make that happen. Yeah, and the misogyny more comes from the aggressiveness with which he pursues Micah, but the actual words he's saying aren't the kind of misogyny that you'd expect. He says, I like a woman who gives orders, which is gross, and you shouldn't say to someone you just met, but also not the typical, like, what are you doing in here? You don't look like a comic book reader kind of thing. Yes, I think that's really important that she's not being mistreated because they think she she can't read comics. It's just that this guy is, like, really into hitting on her, um, which is a problem women face, but a sort of, like, there's a Venn diagram of those problems, but it's not a perfect circle. Yes, and so she asks for a list of anyone who's bought Iron Shadow comics from this person and then goes over to Pete, who is perusing comics. And then we get an interesting subversion, too, where... Pete reveals some information about himself. He says that his sister is the one who got him hooked into comic books after his dad died because she thought they'd be a good scape for him. And I love when we get those kinds of details about Pete and about his sister. And I just wrote in all caps underneath that, boom, right in the feels. That's how fandom's born. You get to that vulnerable place and either you find something or someone you care about recommends something and then you're just really hooked into it and it has this deeper meaning to you, which is something we covered in our mailbag episode. I thought it was also really great that his sister got in, into comics because not only is she a woman, but we know from the previous episode that she's a woman with a disability. So Pete's sister is deaf. And I do think that sometimes in good ways and sometimes in bad ways, disabilities are represented in comic books. And the idea, um, I mean, I'm thinking of like, Hawkeye is the one I'm thinking of now, but there's better ones, too. I, I can't let this go by without saying specifically almost everyone on the X-Men. Oh, yeah. Um, and again, I am not super, I'm only casually versed in comics, so I'm not an expert in any sense of the word. But, um, yeah, so I, I, I do know um, about disability studies, and I do love that his sister's character has all of this development, even though we have never seen even a picture of her. Yes, agreed. Um, and the comic book shop owner, or at least worker, shows up and says, I'll trade you for your phone number, <laughs> holding up the list of people who had bought Iron Shadow comics. And Micah just straight up says no and takes the list anyway, which I really like. She's like, I am not engaging. And from there, we go to the warehouse in the office. And there, Artie is running a scan, and it spits out an image and small description of General Patton's steel military helmet. Uh, but he says, no, I know that's not what's doing this. And it has mass telepathic communication listed as its skill. So I think he's looking for something about McPherson, but is it not so much about whatever's happening in Detroit. And as that's happening, he spots McPherson in a reflection 
on his computer screen mm-hmm. and turns around to find Claudia and Lena, which I think is really interesting because you would think he'd see their reflections in the screen. And Lena says, if something's wrong with the warehouse, you should tell us because she can definitely tell something's wrong with him. And Artie says enough and tries to shut everyone down and walk away and starts to go. But because character growth, he stops, turns around and tells them that he's seeing McPherson. And Claudia is just ready to accept that ghosts exist. She's just like, oh, well, yeah, I guess it makes sense. Like, if there was ever going to be a ghost, yeah. And Artie immediately is like, no, 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 ghosts don't exist. They're just a manifestation of temporal. And then he just stops and goes, the dead can rise again. And you're like, uh, what? And I do want to say for future plot points, it is interesting that there are specific resurrection artifacts in the warehouse. We now have the phoenix, and we have, um whatever is about to be involved here, just keep note for future characters and future plot points. But Lena says, well, do you think this is just a manifestation of your guilt? And Artie very assuredly dismisses it. He just goes, no, I have no guilt. Yeah, he says he has no guilt, which like, okay, I wrote, just pause there, because even if he does say like, I tried to help, I did this and that, I was not the one who killed him. What, like, even if there is a rational reason why Artie is not to blame for McPherson's death, it is the human response to feel conflicted and feel some part of guilt about that serious of a situation that they all just went through. Like, the, the quickness of his dismissal should make us pause and think about that. I would agree, but I do want to say he's dealt with the loss of McPherson for so much longer than we have. He's had to deal with that loss ever since he turned on him regarding the Phoenix back in that fire. I think that's true. It's not realistic if this has all just happened for him to say I have no guilt, but I think this was a response of I've worked through that. I feel like he would know if he was in such a distressed state that he started having hallucinations. Yes, and before we get into suggestions, I just want to make a shout out to Claudia's response when Artie goes classic Artie and says, the dead can rise again. (laughs) And Claudia's like, oh, that vampire meme is so aught nine, which to me is so funny. Um, So I remember this very well, and I'm sure Jill does too, In 2009, it was actually, okay, November of 2008 that the first Twilight movie came out, and this was our start of college that we had to deal with all of the Twilight fanning, fan, fandoming, but like, as you know, Jillian and I never shame anybody for any media that you love, you should love it wholeheartedly, and I don't mind at all if you love Twilight, I just think it was so pervasive in the cultural consciousness in the 2009 era that Claudia's um, pop culture reference is just dead on. Yes, I 100% agree. And uh, at that point, Artie brings up Rasputin's prayer robe. Ra, ra, Rasputin, Russia's in. <laughs> Do you know that song? No! What? I, I know the real song. I don't know that song, but whatever you just sang was to the tune of Hey Mickey, You're So Fine. 
It was not. <laughs> <laughs> what you just sang was. But okay, I'll definitely look that up and put that in the show notes. And along with that, I will put facts about the two artifacts that appear in the scene, which are General Patton's steel military helmet and Rasputin's prayer robe. We are at the point in the series where we just can't cover with experts every single artifact that exists. And I know that I need to say this explicitly because every time we post an episode now, someone's like, but are you going to cover this artifact? And we're like, we're going to try. We'll get there. I promise. Yes. Uh, well, with that, Artie hands off some notes to Claudia who declares Alonzi as she finds the prayer rope. And uh, they believe this is what's up. And it transfers, or it cuts from there to Sheldon's house, where Pete and Micah are confronting Sheldon about being the Iron Shadow. And he's got really shaky hands. Yeah, he's sitting down, he has a hot beverage, he's clearly shaking, and they're onto something when they point out that he is dealing with something beyond his control, and it's dangerous. They don't think it's his fault, but they think that he can't control it. Pete makes a comment about how he understands, like, it must feel so great to go from a 98-pound weakling to a badass overnight. And this is important because we are going to learn that this is the Charles Atlas um, artifact. And that is not only, like, Charles Atlas is a real person, and we will include that later, but also of all of the mythology that comes and is built in the comic book world around that concept of, like, going from a scrawny, scrawny dude to a big, strong dude. Um, the Iron Shadow is not a real character. I can only imagine the logistical and legal shenanigans that would have been involved in sci-fi obtaining the rights to an actual comic book character in 2010, right when comic book IP was blowing up as the newest source of cultural materialism to be, like, drained for capital. <laughs> but, um, so they created the Iron Shadow, who is kind of a mishmash of, of tropes and expectations from kind of classic comic book heroes. Um, kind of combines a little bit of Superman, a little bit of Batman, some Mexican luchador wrestler, um, into something that everyone can kind of recognize as a superhero without having to actually uh, worry about impinging on any individual superhero's fandom. Um, but while the Iron Shadow isn't a real comic book character, Charles Atlas is both a real historical figure, um, a famous strongman, and an early kind of fitness self-help pioneer. But uh, Charles Atlas was also in his own way a comic book character in that for decades and decades, individual comic books would often feature a full-page ad for Charles Atlas and his fitness system. So the line that Pete says about being a 98-pound weakling is a reference to the famous catchphrase of these full-page ads of being a 98-pound weakling who has sand kicked in your face, and you don't have to take it from the bullies if you'll just use Charles Atlas's system to get strong. So even though Charles Atlas wasn't necessarily a character in the Marvel Universe or the DC Universe, anyone who read comics would recognize him as part of the comic experience. But I do want to say that Micah says at this point, Micah tells Sheldon that every artifact has a downside. And I don't know, but I think that might be the first time we get that as an axiom in this world. And I think that their honesty with Sheldon seems to be getting through to him. Micah mentions Loretta and he breaks the coffee cup by accident because he doesn't want Loretta to know. He repeats the story about feeling so unsafe he also says, I was attacked in my own home. You have no idea what that's like. 
And Pete very earnestly says, actually, we do, because the warehouse is their home, and they were just very recently attacked there on all fronts, so they have a very good point of reference for where he's coming from. But Sheldon's outburst really confirmed that it was him who was doing these things, because most people don't have the grip strength to just shatter a freaking coffee mug. But that in itself I found alarming as someone who watches and studies a lot of TV, because that's a very clear answer, that this is the dude. And you don't usually get something like that in Act 2, which is where we're at right now. And so Sheldon seems to agree. He doesn't actually say what it is. He's like, okay, I'll go get it. He leaves the room, and then we hear, you know, the the loud noise, and he bursts through the wall, and Pete and Michael rush after him. He's gone outside to see what he's up to, and as they do this, Micah asks just how powerful the Iron Shadow is. I love that Pete makes the Hulk joke and is like, you mean in a fight with the Hulk who would win? The Hulk by a mile, like... I kind of love that that's the answer. I think that is almost always the answer. Although, again, I am not a comic expert in any way. But it's just like, oh, okay. Oh, wait. We pan over to him. He is on top of a building. He's got this, like, energy radiating off of him. And he's shouting, which I think could come off as cheesy. But in fact, because we are playing with comic book tropes... Um, He is doing the villain monologue, and he's like, I will save this city! I will make it safe for her, and no one is going to stop me. Like, to me, it's funny in a good way, and it, like, brings us into the mindset of someone who really has a lot of knowledge of that medium. Yeah, 100%. And the other thing that I really love about it is that physically and verbally, the character of the Iron Shadow seems so out there and crazy, but it has this awesome reverse effect of making the warehouse world seem so much more realistic and plausible. Because even these characters who deal with crazy things on a day-to-day basis, even they're like, wow, this is so much. And it helps it, it, it grounds the show in a really interesting and unexpected way. And I have, so remind me to come back to that because Claudia makes actually that point in like a really nerdy way later. Pete is actually really excited to see the Iron Shadow becoming like all activated and ready to roll, but they start, what is the word, spitballing? Free, free, I keep wanting to say freeballing and that's not what I'm talking about. (laughs) 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 That's going to go in a blooper, that's not what I think. Please don't make it for the bloopers. Please keep it in the real thing. That was amazing. But they (laughs) brainstorm. So as they brainstorm what could possibly be causing all of these disparate effects, like on the one hand, he can resist a bullet and actually crumple a bullet. But on the other hand, he can fly up in the air and leap a building in a bound. And Micah comes to this idea that altering one's density would make that possible. I am not a physicist, so I have no idea how plausible this is, but Claudia, who is our, you know, scientist in the show, when she finds out, is on board with this. Yes. Just as a note, we are now in Act 3, and we went out on a classic shoop, shoop, shoop box before. Oh, thank you! When did we go out on the box? 
uh, right after the, I'm going to make this city safe for her, and then blast them backward into a wall. Yes, okay, and so it's when they get up from the wall, future self, um, say this first, that then they, they get up from being blasted, they, they free ball those ideas, <laughs> and they realize that it's density, and then we cut back to the warehouse. Yes, and that is actually, Micah is so smart. She says so many smart things in that scene because even though Pete is just really excited, as honestly all of us would be if we saw comic book stuff coming to life, she doesn't have that background, which actually makes her more of an objective observer. And objectively, what she's seeing is terrifying, not just because it's powerful, She says, well, he has hand tremors, and that may indicate neurological trauma because he's obviously altering his molecular structure, which sounds like technobabble, but it's not. It actually makes perfect sense. And I really admire her ability to take really out there otherworldly things and make them make sense in our reality. That's This show is science fiction and also fantasy, and I really like when they bring the actual science into it. So... This takes us back to the warehouse, where Artie is giving a Russian history lecture, which again, I am limited to Anna Karenina and the Anastasia movie, Um, but he says that the Bolsheviks did kill Rasputin on their first try, but these myths of him being unkillable come from the fact that they actually had a prayer rope that people resurrected Rasputin with over and over again. Which honestly almost makes more sense than the actual assassination of Rasputin because the guy wouldn't die. (laughs) (laughs) That's what the warehouse wants us to think. They're like, oh, what a silly legend, but actually there's an artifact. (laughs) So they're going to neutralize the prayer rope which they, or Artie at least, believes is causing McPherson to sort of like re- Uh, recreate his essence in a way and Artie explains that there's a vat of purple goo with a special like like a special chamber that will reach all the hard to reach places he calls it a goo scrubber as the official name Ah, I didn't hear that that's so good Uh, so curiously they put the artifact in and it does seem to like have some sort of reaction when they run the machine Uh, I'm not sure what you thought, Jill, but this is not like the disappointment of the key in the coffee house. It's sort of like, okay, maybe this is sort of involved? What did you think? I think it goes back to what you first talked about in, gosh, was it 103 Magnetism? I think so. Where the things that happen in the warehouse do have a direct impact on these artifacts because they are all emotionally driven and they found Rasputin's prayer robe not just because of what it can do but because of its proximity to the Escher vault where McPherson died and it was clearly an emotional event for everyone and so it very likely could have had an effect on the surrounding artifacts and I think even if it wasn't the thing that creates what Artie is experiencing it probably definitely got some reverberation from a death-based emotional trauma that happened in its proximity. You're so smart. This is the moment where I get to just recognize that I never would have thought of that. Oh, you're amazing. well, thank you. Um, this uh, scene ends with Claudia's 
poltergeist reference <laughs> where they they've removed the artifact they put it in another bag and claudia says this house is clean Artie says goodbye in russian and kind of like leave they leave the scene they're starting to part ways um but claudia and lena are now ready to have their confrontation and claudia finally opens up to lena not in a surrendery kind of way as we would like where she's dropping the tension but she finally is like okay I'm gonna get stuff off my chest she just needed time to get there and basically says it really sucks that you chose me out of everyone you could have chosen and I know that you were under some kind of spell but it almost cost me the only family I ever had and Lena says that she didn't choose Claudia. None of it was up to her, and Claudia is not the only person who almost lost their family, and that this is especially upsetting to Lena because it's turning everyone against each other, or at least turning them inward so that they can't relate to each other, which, as an empath, is her worst nightmare. Um, and basically says that Claudia needs to trust her, and that sort of gets through. To Claudia but not enough she needs time to process and Lena's still feeling pretty hurt and Lena storms away and at that moment Micah Farnsworth's Claudia yes and before we get to the call I was really moved by Lena saying I almost or you're not the only one who almost lost her family and I think it's especially because we know Joshua's uh Joshua's Claudia's brother um, that is her only person, but she has a person. Lena, we don't know who her person is. And maybe there is not any person. Um, you know, we could say that the the writing just hasn't put it in, but we could also interpret that she is, you know, an orphan or an only child or any of these things. And the relationships we see Lena in are always, especially with Artie, and especially similar to Claudia in the way that uh, Claudia is sort of a teen daughter, I think Lena is like an adult daughter who takes care of her dad and like tells him to eat healthy and, you know, like loves him even though he's grumpy. So to me, Lena and Claudia don't have the exact same relationship with Artie, but they have a very similar one. And it's important that we think of how much these people mean to Lena and it's not just Claudia who needs them so I 100% agree and I'll put it out there I'll always be a little bit bitter and grumpy that we don't know more about Lena except in her roles as a service to others mm -hmm. which I gotta think would be different if it was written today I would hope at least but because we don't have a lot of information about her own personal internal life or her life prior to when we meet her in the warehouse, I will say that I have always thought that she has a personal relationship with Mrs. Frederick from outside the warehouse. Yes, and I'm sure you've seen on like the fan Wikipedia and stuff, a fun fact is that like in the original pilot, Lena's last name was Frederick, something like that. So... Um, in the warehouse office, uh, McPherson reappears to Artie and says, you won't be rid of me that easily. And before we can get deeper into what that means, we go back to Detroit, where Claudia is on the Farnsworth with Micah and Pete, and <laughs> she says she ran that thing, the density thing, 
uh, by Grumpzilla, which is her nickname for Artie right now, <laughs> which I love. And, okay, she lists three artifacts that it could be, but all of them are currently in the warehouse. And two of them I can't really speak about. One is Samson's Jawbone. Haven't read that Bible story in a while, so I don't know. Babe Ruth's Bat, which I think is pretty self-explanatory. Dude hit a lot of home runs. Strong. There you go. Um, But the one that really stood out to me that they have in the warehouse was Bruce Lee's punching bag. Because that's such a genius thing for them to include because he was famous for the one-inch punch, which put, like, a tremendous amount of force behind a very short distance of punch, which not a lot of people have ever figured out how he did. And I love the warehouse theory that it was because he was able to actually alter density in his fist. It's fascinating. I love that, and I love that you paid attention because I was mostly just focused on the one that they think it is, which is Jacob Kurtzberg's belt. Um, It's not in the warehouse, and Micah and Pete, if this is the artifact would need something to counteract that. Um, And the reason that Claudia finds that belt is actually because of Pete's knowledge of the comic book. Um, So there is a fun, silly explanation that the uh, Iron Shadow is able to alter his density through chakra energy. (laughs) Um, Not not important, it's just some some world building that, uh, again, makes us get a little comic chuckle. And um, this leads Claudia to remember some quote-unquote DARPA gack that she was working on in inventory. DARPA is a real thing, Defense Advanced Research Projects Agency, and this gack suit we're going to see later is building off of super, specifically like super heroin ideas um, from the 1990s, which... If there is time, our expert did explain what a gag suit is, but we'll see if there's time. And Jacob Kurtzberg is a real person uh, He who really was known as Jack the King Kirby, and he ties in very well because he created many Silver Age comic book heroes, including the Fantastic Four, many of the X-Men, and the Hulk. And he also created with Joel Simon the character of Captain America, which I think is pretty amazing, and I love the nod to him. And again, I'm not a comic expert, so if I miscited any of these, it's my fault for writing them down wrong. Please correct me. But I do love that they thought, oh, well, this seems like a good idea, because what if it's something that belonged to the person who created all of these very important comics? And so maybe his emotions about the characters imbued themselves into this belt, you know, which was a really beautiful little shout out that even though it wasn't the artifact, showed the writer's knowledge of comic book history and, you know, a desire to honor those who came before. And I love too, because the wide variety from Bruce Lee, who you mentioned, to Jacob Kersberg, shows that artifacts aren't just made by, like, people who are the the physical force in the world, but also of, cre- you know, creators who create something. Um, and we see lots of these, you know, writers or artists. We saw Sylvia Plath. Like, we see people who they created an artifact simply by their own imaginative abilities, which is amazing and resonates with both of us as writers and then obviously with the people who wrote this episode and knew what they were talking about. 
Yes, and with that, Claudia hangs up to go do her thing, and Pete tells Micah, all right, well, you know, this means that we got to play by my book and not yours. And he's so excited to be able to take the reins, not just because he has to or because he's macho, but because it revolves around something that he loves and is passionate about. Yeah, and we saw Micah have her moment with H.G. Wells last episode where the thing you are passionate about is the artifact of the week. And now it's Pete's turn. And he leads Micah through this great conversation where he's like, you know, what was Superman's only weakness? We have to go after it. And Micah, she lights up. She's like, I know this one. It's kryptonite. (laughs) Which is not wrong, but... Pete was trying to get her to the idea of Lois Lane, and they are in Sheldon's home. They see a candid photo of Sheldon and Loretta, and that leads us to, you know, we've got to go find Loretta to find Sheldon. And speaking of them, we go back to the pie shop where Sheldon shows up looking real sweaty and asking Loretta if she feels safe. And she says, well, I always feel safe with you. And my internal monologue was, you really shouldn't. He looks real creepy right now. Um, (laughs) But he then says even creepier things, which are, I'm doing this for you. And he activates his powers when Pete and Micah show up and try to get him to stop after Sheldon confesses to Loretta that he is the Iron Shadow. He shows her his mask, and just before she can react, that's when Pete and Micah burst in and are trying to get him to give them the artifact, and he can't turn off his powers. He seems overwhelmed, because he wants to sort of attack Pete and Micah, but he can't rein it back in and protect Loretta, and he winds up, like, sending out this shockwave that causes a shelf to crash on Loretta's head, and he freaks out and flies away through a power line. Yeah. Um, And my only thing to point out about this scene was that, you know, we have the chemistry between these characters, and at first, when he's confessing, we think, or Loretta thinks, he's going to say, you know, I love you, like, I have to tell you why I've been doing this. Um, And he does love her, and she does love him, but the artifact has taken over him to the point where... He is revealing his identity, and he can't control it anymore. And that leads us to, you know, him inadvertently hurting her, which is the worst thing that he would ever have happen. And then we go out, and there is no outro card, even on Amazon Prime. And when we come back, we're where we left off in the pie shop. Uh, and P is on a Farnsworth call, which ends when Claudia arrives in the coolest blue leather jacket. I want it so bad. It's the perfect motorcycle jacket style, and it's like electric blue. I am so down. I want it. I wrote the same thing. I love her entrance, and also, like, kudos to the audio engineer of this scene, because you can hear, like, the Farnsworth echo and like you can kind of hear a real voice and they're like coming in towards each other. I watched it on my big TV and it it turns out great. It's like, oh, she is, she is walking in right now. And then it's like, never fear, Claudia is here. It's so great. And she comes in and she says that 
Artie knows she's there, don't worry about it, which of course would be your first question, um, because Artie likes to keep tabs on everyone. He says, yeah, he said it was okay that I came. And then she goes, well, actually, he said, rough, rough, go, go, which I thought was so funny. <laughs> yes, and she explains that this black, shiny material she's pulled out of her big Mary Poppins bag is thinner than Kevlar and way more resilient. It's going to absorb the kinetic energy that is being, you know, put off by the artifact. And she also reveals a Claudia Donovan original, which are some really cool uh, steampunky, cyborgy gloves um, that she says will channel the energy from the suit. And so this next line is really brilliant and goes back to what I was going to say about Jillian's point. She says, irresistible force, say ni hao to immovable object, which is um, just like a paradox in, I don't know, science. I'm using high school science here, so a real scientist can, you know, chime in um, to us. But to my limited knowledge, this is a science reference to basically the paradox that if an irresistible force exists, an Im- no object would be immovable and vice versa. Do you know what I mean? One yeah. can't exist without the other. Yes. Um, so what I like is that Claudia's pointing out how the things that seem impossible can actually be possible through the warehouse science fiction fantasy that we experience, um, and through her own scientific prowess, her ability to create this glove out of, like, it's like she built it on the plane or something, like, she made this happen so fast and is using her girl science smarts to resist this really scary artifact. And Pete is so excited. He does not wait barely (laughs) for her to finish the explanation. He just rips his shirt off, and you can see Jules stay in the background, just, like, make this what face? Just, like, wow, that was fast. Yes. (laughs) It's so funny, and he is ready. He's like, I am ready to play a superhero in real life. He's, it's like he's been waiting this moment forever. Just just like Micah was waiting forever for the chance to like meet one of her literary idols and then met H.G. Wells, and it didn't go quite as expected. This is the exact same thing. He's like, all right, I'm taking off my clothes. This is my big wardrobe change into my superhero moment. But then... Then Claudia points out a kink, which I just have to point out because Jillian probably was too demi to notice... A kink, as if seeing Micah in spandex was not the real kink. (laughs) Um, (laughs) The kink in the plan is that the suit drains the wearer of their vitality. Um, The first thing she says is that you can only wear it for 60 minutes. And Pete is like, I only need 60 seconds, rah, rah. And then um, she's like, this would cause paralysis and in men, impotence. And he's like over it. Yeah. We get the awkward sound effect, and Pete immediately, um, you know, he's a good dude. I had, I, I feel like this is just purely to be comical, because Claudia could have also just said, and the kink is that the suit is made for a woman's body, because it's, like, clearly, like, a size 8, you know? <laughs> I don't know if the ma- material could stretch to Pete's man chest. Maybe it could fit his broad shoulders, but... Clearly, like, Claudia says this, and it's supposed to be a funny joke. 
And also, like, I do think Pete would try to squeeze into just about any superhero outfit. And it's really the immediate bodily danger that's the only thing that can deter him. And personally, my thought was Claudia already knew that it was going to be Micah wearing it because she made the suit. So it was like, but it was just all folded up. So Pete didn't know. I'm sure he just thought, suit, I'm going to put it on. Well, and it is, I like the, the feminism that we're not going to fight one super male hero with another male hero. We're going to fight with a female hero. The question is, you know, this 1990s spandex, you know, I mean, I think Micah looks amazing. Yeah. I'm not complaining about Micah wearing it, but it is an old idea of female power that's not super current. But it would make sense, though, because it's an artifact, so it is inherently from the past. Yeah, right? I agree, and I think... Yes, it's an artifact from the past, and also it's a playful episode that is acknowledging how much the past influences current trends and knowledge. Um, and I don't have time to include this whole clip, but our artifact expert, Josh, just made the joke that he thinks the boots were not necessary and Claudia just thought they would match. <laughs> oh, I have a note about something I assume Claudia does later when we actually see Micah in the suit. I'll get there. Yes, because we hear nothing about boots being required for this suit. There could be science reasons why you need big, tall rubber boots, um, but we'll see boots later when we actually see Michael wear it. So, to the warehouse. Oh, hold on, I have a sticky note for this. Sorry. You have a sticky note? Yes. Because at the warehouse, Artie is on the ground with a big chalkboard, which leads me to my segment, Words on Surfaces. Woo! <laughs> so, I'll let Jillian do the actual scene, but I did pause for the words on the big chalkboard. Very nice swirly handwriting. Um, and what Artie is doing is brainstorming McPherson's motives, which seems like a really deeply introspective and emotionally toiling thing to do. So the words I was able to glean from this surface were use of artifact, revenge for bronze, revenge for whatever, <laughs> professional jealousy, question mark, and lastly, this is going to come in, the watch, question mark. So those were the bullet points that I identified that Artie is thinking of. God, I love the art director. Was it Hamish? I think yes. they said it was Hamish. I'll, I love that dude. There wasn't really much to say in that scene other than that Lena tries talking to Artie, but that just sets him off mumbling. And... As Lena walks away, sort of annoyed and a little defeated, she has another flashback and has to sort of catch herself on a surface until she's ready. And from there, we go back to Detroit, where Loretta realizes that Sheldon is at the factory from which he was laid off because he used to be an automotive engineer, which the factory is now closed, and that ties in very nicely to what we said earlier about the recession in Detroit at that time. Yes, and so I just did some very preliminary Wikipedia-ing, but 
from what I read, and if you are from Detroit, please let us know, but what I read is one of the big issues with the rapid exodus of people from Detroit was that it became so difficult to distribute services like even water and electricity, but also police and paramedics, because so many, you know, half of the city fled and no longer lived there, and then it wasn't really, like, the amount of space with the limited amount of people, it wasn't easy to manage so few people over such a broad space. So a giant empty warehouse and the fact that a police officer has trouble patrolling that area because there's all of these unpopulated areas makes perfect sense and is a nod to the real issues in Detroit. Yes, and that is where they go, and Micah appears in her superhero outfit, and I wrote, look and fly. But I also put a note, and this is what I was referring to earlier, I didn't notice the boots because I was so focused on the winged eyeliner that I assume Claudia did. <laughs> because I'm pretty sure Claudia was just like, you have to do this, like, it's okay, this is the one chance, and Micah was like, okay, is this important? And I'm sure Claudia was like, yes, it's very important. <laughs> I believe it, yeah, because she was not wearing that eyeliner before, and now she is. And you know she would never be like, well, I have to get into character, so I'm going to put on this eyeliner. You, like, Claudia was like, all right, I'm going to help you into this. Here are some boots. Like, And I will say my personal feminism of this, and we're, we're close to time. We should finish soon. But my personal feminism is that makeup does make me feel really powerful, and, like, wearing a strong eye or a bold lip is like, yeah, I'm hot and I'm going to do this. And I think maybe maybe Micah needed a little of that. Or maybe Claudia thought she needed a little of that. And Claudia helps Micah get into this outfit. There is also a song, which I'm sorry, uh, Amazon Prime does tell you what it is, but I was watching on DVD. I am sure our listeners know it because a lot of our listeners love the music, so... Talk amongst yourselves. <laughs> but this amazing, like, rock, kind of powerful female, uh, grungy sound. I'm not a music person, but it comes on. Micah emerges because they're calling out the big guns. Pete and Claudia are there, but it's like, no, we really need Micah. And then we get a callback to the issue of the Iron Shadow that Pete was reading, where he says that the government agents had required the Iron Shadow and all superheroes to reveal their identity. And Micah says, I'm not a sinister agent. Like, she was listening to Pete with this information about comics, and she says, like, we are the good guys. We are trying to help. And obviously, Sheldon is in dire shape, and Micah approaches him and gives him her hands, with those gloves that Claudia designed and the suit. And so he grabs her hands and we see the special effects of energy just being released from Sheldon, going into her suit and her gloves. It is an intense scene. It kind of it comes out a little funny, but I think it's supposed to be playful. And as this happens, Micah doesn't have her hands free. So Pete has to rush in and they're yelling for him to grab the belt, which they believe is the... Jack Kirby. Just say Jack Kirby. Jack Kirby. Okay, so he goes He goes to grab the Jack Kirby belt. At this point, Micah's getting overwhelmed, and Claudia has this great command, which is to use the gauntlets, which I think are some releasing mechanism in her gloves. She releases the energy into the sky, and they have the belt, 
They rush off with it, and Loretta runs to Sheldon, and our little hearts are fluttering, um, to tell him it's okay, they got the belt, but Sheldon says, the belt? It's not the belt. And this is when his underwear on the outside, or the trunks, as we say, begin to kind of visually show energy, expending of energy, and the comical, playful thing that happens is that now, quick, we have to pull off the superhero's pants. Yes, because he's approaching infinite density, which is the most comic book thing I've ever heard in my life. But it is pretty scary because if he collapses in on himself, he'll destroy the city. But my sciencey brain said it also probably create a black hole that's very not good. This is the funny thing is you can tell me because I didn't mark it, but I think that there is either a pause or a, a commercial or a, a cut or something um, because it's like he's approaching infinite density and uh, Claudia explains this and then I'm like that that would create a black hole and then it comes back and they're like Claudia says like basically it would create a black hole. Yes. Um, it says he destroyed the city but we do go out and we are about to enter act five. Because the outro card in this case was a brand new one where the whole scene got smaller and placed in one of the artifact bags. You know, we're in the clutch now. Claudia tells Micah that she has to be careful because the suit might not be able to absorb another round. But obviously this is their only option if there's going to be a destruction of the whole city or the world. And Micah heroically goes forward to try to absorb more of the energy and pretty much the same thing happens, except that this time Micah is literally sucked to Sheldon. His gravitational force is so strong. She takes his hands and clearly experiences pain as, uh, or disorientation at least, as he releases more and more energy. And just like before, in order to grab that energy, she has to have her gloves on him. So... There is no way to remove the trunks, which leads Pete to his different kind of superhero moment where he rushes in sort of like a football player going for the tackle. He fearlessly barrels in and pants Sheldon. I don't know about our international listeners, but that's what we call, you know, pulling down someone's pants, which now is awful. But even when we were in elementary school, I think was like a prank to pull down someone's pants on the like elementary school playground. That's something that I heard about when I was an adult and was horrified that children actually did that to each other. Like, I'd seen that it was, like, a common thing for kids to do, but only once I was an adult. And I was like, well, I'm glad that wasn't a part of my world. (laughs) I will say that because I have multiple siblings, that was a thing we did, especially when we were swimming, we would try to pull down each other's (laughs) pants. I think it's very different if you're in public on a playground versus in the swimming pool with your brother or sister. Um, It should never happen, but it has happened, I'm sure, to some people, and it calls back to the schoolyard bully Ralph Brunsky, who Pete gets some sort of revenge on with this comical thing that he does. And I would like to say two things about this. First of all, Pete really did get his superhero moment because that's the kind of thing that makes you a hero, not the belt or whatever you know accoutrement you have it's the ability to do the scary thing because it's what needs to be done but also 
when Pete finally gets the trunks off, he says, Oi, Gavolt! Which, the last time, like, first of all, correct usage this time. Not hilarious Jewish nonsense. <laughs> but also, the last time we heard him say that was in Duped, which was also written by Ben Robb and Derek A. Hughes. So nice little self-callback there. I really enjoyed it. I love it. It's really funny. And then I would also like to call back to Duped. Because when Micah um, is dazed by this experience, Pete comes to her side and is, he's like very gently brushing her hair aside and like he can tell she's been through something that was physically difficult and he's asked how she's doing and she says super in that high-pitched, like whimsical, somewhat flirty Alice voice. Um, It reminds me of that character when she says it and I think that's on purpose. It's like the the loss of her normal cognitive abilities because she's so worn out. Yeah, 100%. And then it cuts to a little bit later, and Sheldon is talking about, like, all the power that came with the trunks or whatever, and Micah just very earnestly says, well, you know, with great power comes great responsibility, and (laughs) he and Claudia just really try hard to stifle and she's like what is that a thing and it's like oh my god it's like the biggest thing i love that claudia gets i mean obviously i think all all people who like pop culture get the joke but claudia really gets the joke um and just because we didn't say it before this cut also sheldon and uh loretta kiss yes it's probably very exciting for some people but um for us we're focused on the episode yes (laughs) so As they are winding down, Sheldon offers his hands for handcuffs, but that's not what Pete and Micah are here for, and we've seen this before. Claudia, I don't think, is as familiar with it because she was not present in episode 102 with the um, musician and that whole situation. So she is like, we're just going to let him go. And Micah says, an artifact took control of him and he hurt somebody he loves. These things happen and can be forgiven. And that definitely helps Claudia continue working through her discussion with Lena because it doesn't invalidate your feeling of betrayal, but Lena did not intentionally go after Claudia. And it was an artifact, and they have to understand that to move forward. And I love when Micah goes into that like half-mom, half-sisterly mode with Claudia because Claudia needs that in her life. Yeah, um, so Pete stands in a dorky pose and declares that now the city is safe, and they all kind of laugh at him, but he's like, no, that's how these stories end, um, and we kind of smile with that, and return to the warehouse. Where Artie goes back to that, what do we call it, that luggage carousel of rooms, uh, and he goes into McPherson's saved room. And we realize what Artie was mumbling about earlier, about how they were connected with the death, by a death. And he realizes it's because they both used the phoenix and because McPherson is the one who put the phoenix in Artie's pocket. And that is what connected them forever. And he goes in and starts looking through McPherson's room and he just speaks out loud to whatever may remain of McPherson's spirit and just says... I never wanted you gone. I just wanted you back. This melts my heart because I think Artie needed to like verbalize that because he, like we said, he didn't want McPherson to die. He he had a friend and someone he cared about, a partner 
who turned on him and he just wishes that didn't happen and that he had his friend. What I love about this is that with Artie and McPherson, this is the sort of resolution that they need. And then when we get Claudia and Lena's resolution, they need a different kind of less sappy resolution. But this doesn't feel overdone. It feels like exactly the kind of deep running relationship that these long, long term friends had. And um, McPherson appears behind Artie as Artie finds the letter addressed to him, which again, in a career where you're constantly putting your life on the line, like he left that note probably even before he ever turned bad, like before he left the warehouse. And the note says, uh, you know, we used to argue over this watch. I want you to have it. And it ends, good luck, old friend, which great callback to McPherson's sort of language that he calls people old friend, but also that that really is what they are. They're really old friends. And Artie says, I guess we could chat now and then, which is really heartbreaking because in that very moment, McPherson disappears and that manifestation is gone. And we are left with, I think, some ambiguity about, well, now McPherson is gone in the moment that Artie kind of reaches some sort of peace. But also we know that the warehouse artifacts can have sort of echoes and we, we don't know if it's either one or both of the reasons put forth in the episode that made McPherson appear, but he's gone now. Yeah, and we go back to the stacks where Claudia finds Lena and says really bluntly, it could have easily been me, Claudia, that McPherson chose to around with. And then <laughs> Claudia says, he's a big fat jerk who sucked. And that to me is... So, Claudia and Lena have a young adult, character-realistic resolution of two people who know each other casually and need to remain friends and co-workers, as opposed to, you know, Artie and McPherson who needed a deeper resolution. To me, Claudia saying he was a big fat jerk who sucked is the most Claudia apology she could have offered. Um... And she's also wearing an amazing denim vest with pins on it, and I love it. And even when I was watching this with Stina, Stina was like, and, you know, Claudia gave us the hope that vests would be cool to wear, but none of us ever look as good as Claudia does in this <laughs> vest. So we get the resolution with them, but after Claudia walks away, Lena kind of drops down and is seeing now red and shaking uh, like images of the warehouse around her and she pulls out her kind of cool looking phone and calls Mrs. Frederick who had specifically informed her to let her know if something strange happened and that's pretty ominous that makes me nervous yes and from there that's the end of the act and we come back for our final act which is act six we're back in the warehouse where they're shelving they meaning Pete and Micah are shelving the artifact, which is the first time we actually learn what they are, which is Charles Atlas trunks. Pete is trying to get Micah to admit that she enjoyed being a superhero, and I love her response. She's like, yeah, I mean, it's cool, 
saving the world and everything, but we kind of do that anyway. And I just love that she walks around kind of thinking of herself as a superhero, just casually. That just makes me so happy. Yeah, and I want everyone listening, whatever you do, maybe you're a teacher, maybe you're a nurse, maybe you're a mom, like... There are so many things that make a huge positive impact on the world that you don't have to be a superhero to do. So take Micah's confidence in that, that there is a realization not only of the stereotypical hero, but of the everyday hero, and certainly Pete and Micah are that. Yes, and that is when, in the course of that conversation, Micah finally reveals to Pete that her middle name is Ophelia, which he says is actually beautiful, and then pauses a minute and makes a joke and says, Can I feel your boobies? <laughs> it's so bad. See, if anyone other than Pete said that, I would hate them. But, like, they laugh about it, and we do know that when he says that's kind of beautiful, like, it's a genuine compliment. He, he does love and respect her, and it's because they have this teasing, taunting sibling relationship and because he's not malevolent in any way, that he makes his silly, boyish joke. And then they Shakespeare their way about. I love the Shakespeare bit that they both get involved in earlier. Because if you go back even just to um, 107 Implosion, I, be- I believe that's the one it is. Sorry. But the one that Bob Goodman wrote with The Spine of Saracen, that one Pete jokingly extends his arm to her, like, so that she can grab on to his elbow. And she's like, no, of course not. Like, they weren't at a place where she could even lean on him. And now they're doing, like, fake Shakespeare bits together. It's so sweet. And I just, it's a very visual symbol of how far their friendship has grown. I love that you said that. Because the first time I had missed the Shakespeare reference, I was like, what are they doing? Like, this bit. But it's a good bit. Um... And they're doing this bit on their way to Pete's room where Micah is like, so you still didn't get your stuff back? And when they walk in, they're going there because, surprise, Micah has set up all new stuff for him, a big TV, and the rare comic that he didn't have, she has gotten for him. There is like a really brief joke where he says, this is so hard to get. She's like, you don't believe what I had to do to get that. And, like, we think to the weird comic books guy, and we're like, oh, man, like, did she have to give him her number for a date? But I think she probably had to go to coffee with him and was like, okay, I'll we'll go, on co- we'll go get coffee together. And, like... She went to coffee with the comic book guy and gave him a lecture about intersectional feminism. Yes. And say that that's what they did. And, that, and that, that he was like, well, this wasn't the date I expected, but I do have to give you your comic book now. Yes. And it also seems to fit in really well with um the hairy tarantula because when i went to their website like they've got a whole section of like rare collectibles and like how they accept payment and the minimum amount that they're willing to sell anything for and i was just like wow that's a lot of stuff that i don't know about yeah i was just saying that the hairy tarantula is a place where you could probably reliably get a rare comic book or a rare collectible yeah and so everyone is brought together in a positive ending for the episode Lena goes to get cookies while Grumpzilla apologizes to Claudia. <laughs> um, and I think that was that was necessary because he was being a little short with people post the McPherson uh, chaos. And he says, like, I'm with you. I'm here 100%. And then she pulls a yellow paper out of, I think, his pocket 
And if you see it, because you know I love words on surfaces, there is giant H.G. Wells written on it and big doodles all over of just, like, his messy ramblings of H.G. Wells. And so he's, like, claiming that he is 100% in the moment with them, but obviously his priority is H.G., who is still out in the world. And this is kind of funny, and they make a joke about, like, yeah, Artie, silly Artie, he's so obsessed. And Pete and Micah kind of crash onto the bed together, and Micah asks him if, you know, if it feels like home, and the episode ends with him saying, it's better than home. And we all are so happy because our characters are their found family and they're together and they love each other and they support each other and we love it. I love it so much that they're just so happy being together. And that's how the episode ends, which is nice. It's not ending with like a scary, like they could have easily saved Lena's flashback for like the final tag button scene. Mm -hmm. But I'm really glad that it ended on an up note because we really needed that after all the stuff that had gone through. By season two, the writers really understand that people come to this show for this family of diverse characters who we love. And so we don't need to be lured into coming back for some exciting plot point. We know H.G. Wells is in the background and there's going to be a season arc, but we want to come back because we love our team. And that's really powerful. Woohoo! Well, it's been a long time working on that episode, so thank you so much for your patience. I've been updating you all on Twitter about my new job. I've been very, very busy, but things are settling in now, so we should be back to a normal schedule. Also, you may have seen on Twitter that we have merch now. You can get 13% off all merch all the time if you are a Patreon patron. So check out warehouse13pod.com merch to buy some amazing Bering and Wells stuff, as well as podcast logo stuff and pride stuff. Uh, we love you. We can't wait to speak with you again very soon. I think we should be back to a regular every other Tuesday now that things are doing better, but you can keep track of our recent updates on Twitter to make sure that if we are behind, you know why and when to expect us again. So thank you so much. And we'll see you next week, agents. Boop, 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 boop. Okay. Boop, 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 boop. boop. <laughs> <laughs>